You know, we, we follow the lectionary here, and it's wonderful, but there are some days I feel like the lectionary just really, like everything we do just really fits so well, right? Uh, the psalm, uh, our text this morning that we'll look at in sermon time, and frankly, the, that last song about the church's one foundation really is just, it's, it's our sermon text. It's just beautiful. And so this is just one of those uh, days where while it all meshes, this seems like it meshed even better. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, hear the word of the Lord. From the Revelation to John, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray together, please. Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for time where we can worship you. Lord, we thank you for calling us into the gathered worship of the church this morning. Lord, we pray, God, that our worship so far has been honorable to you, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that as we worship you through your word, Lord, and through more song, Lord, and through Eucharist, Lord, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would send your spirit among us this morning to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to understand your word and to hear and to believe what is written, and we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, if I'm not mistaken, today is Mother's Day, right? So, uh, and with it being Mother's Day, my, my personal church experience, and you may, you may have had this experience too, but my church, personal church experience growing up was that the minister who was preaching would always take a break from the series that he was preaching, right? And he would preach a special sermon about mamas, right? Because I mean, I grew up in Mississippi, right? So any Mississippi folks in here always understood, you know, ma- mama was really the way it was, you know, used. Maybe it was other places too, but especially in Mississippi. But 
Now, whether it was to actual mothers or it was because of an obstinate child, such as myself, in order how they should love their mothers better, right? It's just the way it was, right? And while I think that no one here would extremely object if we were to do that, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that really isn't our habit here at Christ Community Church, right? Our habit, yeah, you're right, Walton, right? Praise the Lord. That isn't our habit because Mother's Day always seems to always fall in the middle of Eastertide, right? And so we continue with our Easter celebration of celebrating the bodily death and the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. So I'll just say this, and then we'll look at our text. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. But now let's talk about the apocalypse, right? Like that, that's, let, that, let's do that, right? So, so this year... During, if, you, if you didn't pick up on it in that last sentence, right? This year, during Easter time, we've, we've looked at the book of Revelation, and, uh, which is also known as the Apocalypse to John. And, and as we've made our way through these texts over the last few weeks, we've noticed how John has framed this entire book in the language of a doxology and a hymn of praise to God. And specifically, we've noted how what he's done through this dox, doxological language is that He's reminded us how Christ is worthy to be worshipped as God. Now, looking around the room, I believe we're all believers in Christ in the room, so we all believe that Jesus is God. But, but what Revelation really helps us do is remind us of how he is worthy to be worshipped as God is worshipped. But also in our first week when we were looking at this, we also noted how Christ has given believers a new vocation. We are a kingdom and we are priests. And then last week at the end of chapter 5, we saw how the heavenly chorus and all of creation... They offer worship in their doxology to, the, to God and to the Lamb who was slain. Well, then today in this text, we, we turn our attention then now to us, to the kingdom of priests who are offering our doxology and praise to God and to the Lamb who was slain. And so just with keeping with that framework of doxology and a kingdom of priests in mind, let's just look at this text. So what John does, and actually, and, and you can't really note this in, in your bulletin, but which is fine, so I'll help you do it, right? But what John has done in this text is he's actually broken it up into three really helpful sections for his readers. There's a section within verses 9 through 12, and then again in 13 and 14, and then finally in verses 15 through 17. And so that's how we'll look at this text today. Um, and what they do really is they help clarify certain characteristics of our vocation as a kingdom of priests. And so just considering this first section of verses 9 through 12, what John does is he actually helps lay out for us in greater detail our work as priests and our doxology as a kingdom of priests. And similar to last week's text, John's vision of the heavenly throne room is continuing here, but he's showing this doxology. It actually is occurring antiphonally. So what we have is we have the priesthood of God crying out here in verse 10, and then again, there is a repeated affirmation by the heavenly chorus that we saw last week at the end of chapter 5. And so starting with the priesthood, starting, frankly, with us and our doxology, we read here in verses 9 and 10 again. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so... What verse 9 really does is it really kind of helpfully sets the context of what's going on in this worship of the kingdom of priests. From where we left off last week, so we ended chapter 5 last week. And from there where we left off, what we've seen is that the Lord Jesus, he is now in, in, in the time from the end of chapter 5 to now, he has opened 
Six of the seven seals that were on this scroll that were in the right hand of God. And then actually what happens is about midway through chapter 6, we get to verse 9, and we see Jesus opens the fifth seal. And this is important for our text this morning, and this is what happens. John writes this, he says, When Christ opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers could be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you can already see how not only that last song we just sang is really helpful here, but how, this te- how that really connects to our text this morning. And so then we come on into chapter 7, and beginning in chapter 7, we see that John hears, and his hearing here I think is really important. He hears the sealing of the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. But then we come finally to our text, and starting in verse 9, and we see this. He hears the sealing of the 144,000, but then after this, I looked. So while John hears the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel being sealed, God allows him to visually see this great multitude of innumerable people from all tribes and from all peoples and from all languages. And we could take a moment here and we could deviate on the theological distinctions regarding specific end times theology. But what I think God is doing here for us and what he was inspiring John to write and what he was showing John is I think he's taking this this old covenant, this nationalistic and ethnic expectation, which John hears when the 144,000 are sealed. And what God is doing is he's now fully manifesting it. He's showing John visually through the bodily death and the bodily resurrection of Christ. And he's pointing him to the fullness that is the kingdom of priests that Christ has now ransomed from all the peoples of the earth, both Jew and Gentile. And one of the church fathers, Caesarius of Arles, he agrees with this. He says, John did not say, after this, I saw another people. But he said, after this, I saw a people. That is the same people. And he goes on and he says, for by believing, all nations have been engrafted into the root. And in the gospel, the Lord showed forth the 12 tribes, the whole church from both Jew and Gentile. And so John, what he does is he sees the entirety of the priestly kingdom of God. And they are clothed, he tells us here in verse 9, they're clothed in white robes and they're waving palm branches here at the end of the verse. And so for those who were slain for the word of God after opening the fifth seal, they were told to wait just a little longer. But now here in chapter 7, verse 9, they no longer have to wait. Their waiting is over. They are now joined with the entirety of the kingdom of priests. They're all dressed in white robes. They're dressed in the righteousness and holiness of Christ Jesus himself because they have, as verse 14 tells us, they have washed their robes and made them white in his blood. But notice, too, that they're holding palm branches in their hands. Now, palm branches is something that's very familiar to us here at Christ Community Church, right? We, we use them two days of the year. We use them on Palm Sunday, and then we burn those palms on Ash Wednesday, and we use those ashes, right? So, so. We wave palm branches on Palm Sunday, right? We, that's what we do when we have them in our hands. And we wave them and we sing 
and we parade around the church and we give praise and glory to God and we shout Hosanna, right? Palm Sunday is a Sunday of joy. And so here in verse 9, it's that exact same joy that we can really kind of understand what's happening here. It's that exact, exact same joy and it's experienced here, but now the entire priestly kingdom of God, they're, they're experiencing that Palm Sunday joy, but they're adding another quality to it. They're adding the quality of victory because now it's the victory of salvation. It's the victory of the lamb who was bodily slain and the victory of the lamb who was bodily raised from the grave. And we see this by their language of their doxology in that next verse, in verse 10, where they say, crying aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And we see again, here's that same Greek word lego that we saw last week at the end of chapter five. This word that says saying that they cried aloud with a loud voice. That this is this is a word that has the understanding of this is loud and exuberant worship, like all heavenly worship. And so we read that the entirety of the priestly kingdom, they're crying out and they're crying out loudly and they're shouting. They're shouting salvation. They're shouting victory. Salvation and victory belong to God who sits on the throne. But salvation and victory also belong to the lamb. And so notice how this doxology of this priestly kingdom, what it's doing, it's affirming for us who are part of that same priestly kingdom. This is our doxology as much as it is theirs. Notice how it affirms for us this worthiness of the lamb, the worthiness of Christ Jesus to be worshiped as God himself is worshiped. Because only God can bring about true and everlasting salvation. That's only a work that God can do. And so here what they have done, what we see in this doxology that the Lord Jesus, the lamb who was slain, he is distinguished in that same way that God is. And if God is the only one who can bring about true and everlasting salvation, but if salvation also belongs to the lamb who was slain, then Christ Jesus is God. That's our logical conclusion. And since he has done that, then he is worthy to be worshipped as one who salvation belongs to. And so what we notice here, then moving in to verses 11 and 12, is that the heavenly chorus joins in with their praise. But like they did last week, they join in and they affirm what the kingly priesthood has just proclaimed. And they affirm it and they say this. They respond with their own proclamation and they, again, they just say, Amen. They say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. But pay attention, though, how this affirmation, it really helps to clarify our work as a kingdom of priests. Because not only does the heavenly chorus bookend their affirmation with the word amen, right, this word of Affirmation, this word truly, 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 what they just sang is true. This is what this is what the heavenly chorus is saying. But notice though that they use again, they use seven virtues, right? This is the exact same seven virtues that we read about in chapter one. This is the similar seven virtues that we read about last week in chapter five. This is that number that signifies completeness, it signifies fullness. But notice how these virtues, they not only rightly belong to God, they rightly belong to God who has brought about our salvation. But the heavenly chorus, they use two particular words here that I thought were really interesting and helpful of note. Instead of going through all seven, I just want to look at two of them. The first one is this word blessing that, that our ESV translation has here. It says, they say again, amen, blessing and glory. 
This word blessing, I didn't know this actually until I looked it up, but it's, it's the Greek word eulogia, which is the word that we transliterate as eulogy. And when we think of giving a eulogy, right, we think of a funeral, right? I mean, I've done a few funerals in my time. I did my grandfather's funeral a couple of years ago. When we think of a eulogy, we, we think of speaking well of someone, right? We, we want people to remember what they loved about that person, if indeed that person was actually lovable and worth remembering, right? Um, but we want to speak well about them. This is what a eulogy is. We speak well of their accomplishments, of their work. We speak of why they were loved and, frankly, why they will be missed. But consider how we as a kingdom of priests to God, in our worship, how we eulogize the Lord God. To God belongs our eulogy of worship. We speak well of his accomplishments in our singing and in our liturgy. We speak well of him, of his creation, of the salvation that he has brought about for us, our redemption in the bodily death and bodily resurrection of Christ that guarantees, as we saw, our own bodily resurrection. God deserves our eulogy of worship. And one of the most important activities of our worship is speaking well of the Lord God and of his work. That's one word. The other word that I thought was really helpful that even goes even further to signify our work as a kingdom of priests is another very familiar aspect of our worship here at Christ Community Church. Because we see here as a priestly kingdom, we go on and they say blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. We offer thanksgiving to God for what he has done on our behalf by creating us, by sustaining us, by redeeming us through salvation that only belongs to him. And we do this every single week here at Christ Community Church in the Eucharist. Most of us in the room probably know this, but the Greek word for this is Eucharist or Eucharista as it's used here in verse 12. This is the word that means to make thanks or Thanksgiving, as we see here in verse 12, right? So consider for a moment this Eucharist that we do every week, and, but consider it through maybe the lenses of the fall, right? And which sounds like a weird sentence to say, but the sin of the fall in Genesis might be described as a sin of ingratitude by Adam and Eve, right? That they were ungrateful for what God had provided for them. We could take it even further, though, and describe it as a sin of thanklessness. They weren't thankful, And so if the Lord in his death and in his resurrection has redeemed and reversed the effects of the fall on mankind, so sin and death and separation from God, if he has redeemed these things by his death and by his resurrection, then as we make Eucharist every single week, the church is in its own way redeeming this false act of worship from the fall, this this false act of ingratitude, and we are replacing it with our proper and right worship of thanksgiving that only belongs to God as we make Eucharist every single week. So we, we are kingdom of priests in our work of eulogizing the Lord, but also making thanks for what he has done. But moving into this next section of the text in verses 13 and 14, John goes even further. He goes even further on identifying who this priestly kingdom is, and he says this, He says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these who were clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the lamb. 
So we've already kind of looked at who this innumerable multitude are, right? They are from every tribe, from every language, from every nation. We've talked about this quite a bit over the last few weeks. But just like those last few verses, there's actually a couple of really interesting markers, just even in these two verses, that I thought are really helpful as we better understand our own place as a priestly kingdom. And the first thing to note really is in that second verse, in verse 14, where he says that this kingdom of priests are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. So here's one of those other places, right, where we could honestly start wandering down the rabbit hole of different interpretations of the book of Revelation, right? I imagine that there's a few of us in here that have different interpretations of the book, and that's fine. I mean, because we could ask the question, does this mean, and honestly, most everybody I was listening to or consulting this week, just just to get my mind wrapped around some things, most of them were saying, this is a literal seven-year period now. Whatever, right? I mean, it could be, right? I mean, honestly, it really could be. Jeremiah calls this a time of distress. Jesus himself even says this is a time of great distress when he's talking about it in Matthew 24. Um, Daniel notes that it's a time of great trouble. So it it could be a seven-literal-year period, but I think there's a better way, frankly, of looking at it that is more helpful not only for the entirety of the church, but it's more helpful even for us as we look at everything that's going on here. Because while it could mean multiple things, I do think that this is intentionally designating a time between the advents of Christ. Now, I think this sounds very familiar to us. Not only does it sound very familiar to us because we celebrate the season of Advent, but if you were in Sunday school this morning, this really sounds very familiar to us. As we were looking at the book of Wisdom, and we were looking at Luke, and even First Peter, and this day of visitation, all of this is this idea of this time between the Advents. Because that's how we kind of traditionally celebrate Advent here at Christ Community, right? We celebrate the fact that Christ has come, but we always start by reminding ourselves that Christ will come again. But in the meantime, the church has to wait. The church sojourns in the world. It sojourns in the midst of Babylon. And we continue to endure. And we endure for the sake of the gospel and to proclaim Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. But I think we can see this even more clearly with the second aspect of what's in here. And that's really in this question and answer format that John has with this elder in these verses. Again, he says, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these who are clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And he responds and says, sir, you know. We stressed this last week, but we have to remember that John isn't writing this apocalypse in a vacuum, right? He's not writing it without the rest of the counsel of Scripture. Because there's another place where the Lord uses this exact same format with one of his people. When he's especially discussing the redemption of his people and the rescue of his people. So listen to the Lord's exchange with the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37. Most of us probably know this. Here's what he says. Ezekiel writes, he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause my spirit to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, or a great earthquake. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And then as I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and tongue. This is the whole house of Israel. Behold and say, They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So based upon Jesus' own statements in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, we know that all the law and the Psalms and the writings and the prophets are fulfilled in him. And this passage from Ezekiel is definitely part of that. But we can also see how this is fulfilled by those who have come through the great tribulation between the advents of Christ. Caesarius of Arles says this again. He says, these are not only martyrs, but rather these are the whole people of the church. Because it does not say that they wash their robes in their own blood, but rather they wash them in the blood of the Lamb. And they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and God has caused His Spirit to enter them And they have been made alive to Christ. And then finally, in these last three verses this morning, we see that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, those who have come through the great tribulation, they rest in the presence of God. Again, this is that last final song we sang right before we got to our sermon time this morning. Listen again to verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But notice, just starting out there in verse 15, what's really interesting is that even in our rest... The church, the kingdom of priests, we are still involved in the work of a priest. And verse 15 shows us this. It shows us that we read this kingdom of priests, they are before the throne of God. And I think we can in many ways, we can understand this in light of our already not yet existence. Because what much of what is contained within Revelation, because it's a book of prophecy, is definitely, you can classify it as future focus. But if we take this meaning that the great tribulation is 
a time between the advents of Christ, then we can easily grasp how those of us who are before the throne of God are not just those who have been martyred for their faith, which it absolutely includes. It's not just those who are redeemed and now have died. I mean, that can absolutely include them as well. But it's also the church now. It's the church universal, the church Catholic, the church who were already, but the church who are also not yet. Those who have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb who was slain and have had his righteousness imputed to them. They are before his throne. They are in his presence. And through the work of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this includes us even right now. And this already not yet existence of ours, it flows into our work as priests. Because while the kingdom of priests are positioned before the throne and we are resting in God, John tells us here in this verse that we are still serving him day and night in his temple. And so if the basic function of a priest is to serve God in the temple while also serving one another, then we can quickly see how this work continues now, but it also continues later. Because of the bodily death and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of priests, the church, we are positioned before the throne of God to serve him day and night as priests, both in the already and in the not yet. But at the same time, we, we can't ignore the significance of the future aspect of what's in this text. All right? Because there will come a time when our not yet will collide with our already, and it will become always. So to be before the throne of God is to indicate being with him physically, whether that be in heaven or that be in the new creation. And I think that's really where John is going with a lot of this in this entire book. And we see, though, how John starts to, he continues in these final verses to start pointing us that direction. So just looking here, he says this, he says that God, in verse 15, he will shelter the priestly kingdom with his presence. There's safety in his presence, there's protection in the presence of God, but there's also love and acceptance in his presence. And even though this is a future hope, there's a really interesting word here again, and I'm, this one I will probably butcher, but this is the Greek word skeno, I believe is how it's pronounced. And this is a word that John has already used that we have in the New Testament. He's used it back in the prologue to his gospel, specifically in chapter 1, verse 14, where the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. This is the exact same word as tabernacles. And so that very same protection and hope and redemption that broke into time and space and history in the bodily incarnation of Christ Jesus is the same sheltering protection of God that the priestly kingdom has promised as a future hope. But then just going on, we see here in verse 16 that this tabernacling presence of God means that the priestly kingdom will no longer have any physical needs. Right? Or physical wants, maybe, is a, good, a better way to put this. That, so this is another indication not only of the reversal of the curse of the fall, but its full redemption. No longer will hunger or thirst plague us. No longer will the ground be cursed. Just taking the language of Genesis 3 here, no longer will the ground be cursed. We're not going to sow in pain. The ground is not going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Instead, it will bring forth good crops. No longer will we eat bread by the sweat of our brows. Instead, the provision of God to his people will be total and complete in his tabernacling presence in the new creation. Third, we also see that the lamb himself who is in the midst of the throne will actually be the shepherd of the priestly kingdom. This is our psalm for today. This is brought to its full and complete meaning. The lamb becomes the shepherd who will forever guide his flock to springs of living water that only he can provide. As he told the woman at the well, in John 4, right? 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then finally, at the end of the verse, we see here that God will wipe away every tear. This is, this is a promise of the new creation, that there will be no more sorrow, right? So those who have washed their robes white in the, lamb, in the blood of the Lamb, God has sealed. And those whom God has sealed, God protects. And those whom God protects, that priestly kingdom will serve Him and worship Him and delight in His presence and before His throne always. And so as we continue right now in Jackson, Tennessee at Christ Community Church in our already not yet position, let's come forward and do our priestly work of eulogizing the Lord Jesus Christ, of speaking well of what God has done for us in him by making Eucharist for his bodily death and his bodily resurrection. And as David writes at the final verses of Psalm 5, he says this, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh, and you cover him with favor as a shield. Amen.